Good morning, everyone. Let's turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26, as we continue in our vision series about what the kind of community is that God desires us to be. And today we are naming our desire to become a community of contribution in a culture of consumption. Specifically, we're going to look at our relationship to work and how it is intended as a means for us to partner with God for the flourishing of the world. So listen carefully, for this is God's word to us. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Moving over to Genesis chapter two, starting at verse eight, a bit of a a remix of the creation story. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, a Hebrew word that means delight. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good as opposed to the bad gold you find in other lands. <laughs> Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, we would come upon us, you would come upon us, so that by your hearing, we may not just be simply those who hear your words, but who put them into action. We ask this in the name of the one who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In 1776, Adam Smith declared that consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. And that aphorism has sort of been seared into the modern consciousness ever since. It's changed how we think about happiness and success, how we think about our relationship with creation, and even the way that we think about our relationship with the work that we do. Here's a brief history of our culture of consumption. Between 1860 and 1920, advances in technology allowed the production of domestic goods in the United States to increase 12 times. This was during a time period when the population of the United States only increased by three times. At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it was not uncommon for the average worker to spend up to 14 
hours, seven days a week at work. But by 1930, in an essay called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, John Maynard Keynes held that advances in technology would reduce the entire work week to 15 hours by the year 2028. So hang on, people. <laughs> Utopia is right around the corner. And we would have essentially this equivalent of a five-day weekend and a two-day work week. And so we'd have ample time to pursue all of our spiritual and pleasurable activities in our free time with families and communities and, or to pursue creative or educational opportunities. And here's the thing. Things actually seem to be moving in that direction for a while. In the 1930s, for instance, the cereal maker Kellogg adopted a six-hour shift at their Battle Creek facility. And as you can imagine, this was enormously popular with workers, and that was the norm for 11 years until the war effort redistributed the workforce. But immediately after the war, in both 1945 and 1946, workers voted by a margin of three to one to go back to those shorter working hours. The optimism that our work week was going to get shorter and shorter and shorter continued on through the 1950s and the 60s. The post-war economic boom uh, saw all kinds of labor-saving devices introduced into the world, like dishwashers, microwave ovens, and uh, you know, uh, lawnmowers and stuff like that. And with the proliferation of all these time-saving devices, sociologists and economics in the mid-20th century predicted that there would be a forthcoming crisis of inactivity. That the biggest problem we'd face in the future wouldn't be another global war like the one we just suffered. It would be the crisis of all the time on our hands. To quote Keynes, for the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real, his permanent problem, how to occupy the leisure. If you are in the mood for a head trip, Google the film, uh, a short film called The Year 1999 A.D. Uh, we've got some pictures of uh, the film up here. We'll put up here in just a second. Shot in 1967, the filmmaker imagined a home that would be completely organized around the central home computer, which nobody knew what that was in 1967. And in this home, the astrophysicist slash botanist husband and father would monitor space plants for the Mars colonization effort and arrange golf outings with far-flung friends, all from the convenience of a home screen. Apparently in the 1960s, they thought there was going to be a rush on astrophysicists in the future. So while dad is out, you know, trying to decide between Mexico City and Pebble Beach for his golf outing, little Jamie is doing school at home from a home learning console, while mom plans meals with a touch of a button in a, in a, in a germ-free and dirt-free environment. And the computer monitor will, will measure each person's caloric intake to give a perfect plan accordingly, and she will still have time to do all of her shopping and her leisure all from home. This was the future. So what happened? Well, the optimism of the 20th century predicted that, yeah, work is gonna be easier. Uh, we could get more things done. By every indication, labor has gotten easier uh, throughout the years. We had a 200-foot oak tree in our backyard that got struck by lightning a few months ago. Six dudes with 
like a crane and chainsaws, cut the thing down with surgical precision. No damage was done to the house. Better yet, nobody was dead or paralyzed at the end. Like, this is real progress. But what futurists didn't see is how the nature of work itself would change, that it would evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production, and that the increasing demands of consumption that drives this whole economic engine would position us to work more so that we could have more, so we could be more. Back when industrialization began to produce rates at a, uh, goods at a rate that outpaced the population, rather than slowing the means of production on the supply side of the equation, all the industrialists saw the wealth that was theoretically possible if we could solve instead for the demand side of the equation. And in a 1928 book called Propaganda, Edward Bernays, who was a nephew of Sigmund Freud, and one of the pioneers of the advertising industry, described the dilemma like this. He wrote, mass production is profitable only if its rhythm can be maintained. That is, if it can continue to sell its product in steady or increasing quantity. Today, supply must actively seek to create its corresponding demand and cannot afford to wait until the public asks for its product. It must maintain constant touch through advertising and propaganda to assure itself the continuous demand which alone will make its costly plant profitable. Notice the positive use of the word propaganda here. Bernays was an army intelligence officer, uh, and he studied during World War II how Nazis used propaganda to use the ideas of his uncle Sigmund to shape people's desires and harness that power of desire, and he brought that, that, that line of thinking to the advertising industry with astonishing success. His point was that if we're going to fuel progress, industrialists won't just need to manufacture new products. We will need to manufacture desire. And they would need an entirely new industry designed to help people see that the road to happiness lay through the land of consumption. And that same year that Bernays uh, published propaganda, President Herbert Hoover told a group of advertisers that you have taken over the job of creating desire and have transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines. Machines which have become the key to economic progress. Notice how the idea of the common good has moved from, you know, giving people this notion of a stable economy and the idea that our needs can be met, that everyone's needs can be met, toward this ever-expanding definition of good as want and consumption and our role as citizens tied into our being consumers. And progress toward that good meant teaching people to want what their neighbors had and what celebrities had. This was the key to economic growth. The economist Edward Cowdrick called this new idea the new economic gospel of consumption. And I, the word gospel is not an accident here because this was really a new kind of religion. The retail analyst Victor Labau put it bluntly in 1955. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals. 
that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And when consumption becomes the way of life, the way to find success and to find happiness, this inevitably changed the way that we saw work. Uh, around the 1950s, Americans began to choose higher paying jobs that would require them to work longer hours so that they could buy more things so they could achieve more happiness. And people would begin to see their identity in what they have. And they would choose to do what would allow them to have more. The Yale psychologist Lori Santos says that in short, around the middle of the 20th century, we made a social bargain. We traded time for money. Also, we could get more things. So whereas you workers used to opt for shorter hours so they could spend time out in the community and with friends and family and pursuing spiritual endeavors and community associations. Like, remember like the bowling alleys were actually, or bowling leagues were like actually a thing at one point in our history? Well, gradually American workers began to take on longer hours for higher pay. Between the years 1946 to 2014, real incomes in the United States have more than tripled. This is accounting for inflation. Although I don't know where that stands right today. <laughs> Average home size has more than doubled. And 25% of homes that can have a two-car garage cannot actually fit two cars in them because of all the stuff that we own. And during that same time period, in other nations, annual hours worked per employee fell by 40%. But Americans chose to work longer hours, have shorter vacations, and retire later. And the happiness index over those same 70 years has been flat in the United States or negative. And the most, uh, you know, the, the group in the, in the United States, or the group in the world that works the most are college-educated married American men. And my point is that this is a new thing in history. Throughout the world, it has always been the rich who work less and the poor who work more. But we have created a scenario in our culture where those who have money but no time we call rich and successful. And those who have no money, but plenty of time, we call poor. Or worse, we call unambitious. Because money and the goods that it can provide are how we are trained to satisfy our deepest longings and solve our deepest questions of meaning. In short, the economic gospel of prosperity has produced a rival religion. The Atlantic staff writer Derek Thompson calls it workism. And he puts it like this. Workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary for economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. But our desks were never meant to be our altars. A culture that worships the pursuit of extreme success will produce some of it, likely. But extreme success is a falsifiable God which rejects the vast majority of its worshipers. Our jobs were never meant to shoulder the burdens of a faith, and they are buckling under the weight. 
You think about like a WeWork or a Google Complex that provides meal services and, and laundry and, and gyms and daycare centers and nap pods, right? That have these pillows that have written on them, you know, hustle harder or these neon signs that say, do what you love. And they, they're like encouraging underpaid, you know, Gen Zers to hustle harder. Staffed by the overworked millennials who are dedicated to helping you become like a, a code sensei or, you know, a, a customer service rock star or a productivity ninja, whatever any of that means. And on one level, that's all fine and good, right? I mean, the idea of bringing in aesthetics to a work environment, like it's better to work in a, in a pretty and a cool workspace than in a boring one. And the idea of bringing in community to work, that, that's all good and fine. That's great. But on a deeper level, all of this is kind of designed to make work the centerpiece that you orient your life around. A God that will give you meaning and friendship and community and belonging and will produce the means of your salvation. Because when you sacrifice yourself on the altar of work, your reward will come in your being able to buy the next new thing. Except that God is never satisfied and the altar requires perpetual sacrifice. But, what if our work isn't just fuel for the never-ending machine of production and consumption? What if it is meant to be a way we contribute to the flourishing that God intends for the world? What if it is meant to be a good and life-giving way that we steward our whole lives with God for the joy of creation? What if the biblical vision of work is more hopeful, is more liberating than our cultural narrative of work more to get more? And what if generosity and service flow out of work done well? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that humanity is created to rule. And the Hebrew word here is radah. One Hebrew scholar describes radah as actively partnering with God in taking the world forward. So you thought you were just making spreadsheets or that you were just, you know, getting your kids ready for school and getting them breakfast in the morning. But what if you are actually partnering with God for the flourishing of creation? And this word radah, it literally means to reign or to rule. Like this is royal language, the kinds of things that kings and queens do. And this was a radically different viewpoint than anywhere else in the ancient Near East. All of like the Assyrians and the Phoenicians and the Egyptians and even later on the Romans taught that it is the ruler or the king who bears God's image. And that the rest of people who do not, by extension, bear God's image are there simply to do the bidding of the king. And the Genesis story flips that around and says, no, it is not just kings. It is not just men. It is not just one ethnic group or just the people in power. No, every human being bears the image of God. Every human being is made to reign and rule with God bear God's image to creation, to cultivate, to enrich, and ultimately to give this back to God as an act of worship. This is the biblical framework of work. It's not about beating the earth into submission or strip mining it like Pharaoh. It is about taking the raw elements of creation. It's more like 
tending to a garden. Hence those lines in Genesis 2 about gold and, and onyx and resin. It's taking the raw materials of creation and making use of them, developing them, making them more than what they were. Adam uh, is the name Adam, and it simply means in Hebrew, human. And Adam, or human, is put into the garden to do two things, to work it and to care for it. Just a brief word on each. The word for work is abad in Hebrew, and it basically means service. But interestingly, it also is the word used all throughout the Old Testament for worship. As in, our work is not a thing that we worship, but our, our work is a means through which we serve God and we serve others. It becomes a way that we worship God. And it can be also be uh, translated as, this word abad, as uh, to cultivate or to develop its potential. I love how Tim Keller puts it. Uh, he writes this, this is the pattern for all work. It is creative and assertive. It's rearranging the raw materials in God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Rearranging the raw materials of creation to create a space in which people can flourish in relationship to God, in relationship to each other, in relationship to the earth itself. And this is true of all kinds of work. When a farmer takes a seed and soil and water and rearranges them into a crop so that others can eat and enjoy and live, or when a chef takes the the, the work that the farmer has done and, and adds ingredients and arranges them into a meal for others to enjoy in community and in delight. When an entrepreneur takes an idea and turns it into a means of solving a problem, when an artist takes a lump of clay and shapes it into a thing of beauty, when a teacher takes a classroom of unformed minds and creates a space of discovery and wonder, when a scientist takes a, a, a disease and takes the raw materials of, of creation and develops antibiotics when a brewer takes barley and water and hops and yeast and produces a magic elixir. When a sanitation worker cleans a road of debris and creates order, when a craftsman takes a piece of wood and creates an instrument, when a musician takes that instrument then and rearranges sound and, and melody and creates a thing of beauty, when an engineer applies the law of physics, when a construction worker takes the, the engineer's plans and creates a bridge, when a manager unlocks the potential of her team and creates a culture of empowerment, and models good work and good rest. She is imaging God. Our work repairs, develops, and reweaves the fabric of the world. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, Keller goes on, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our word culture comes from this idea of cultivation. When good people take the raw materials of creation and shape it into an Eden-like place of delight. And so your work on any scale, whether it's paid or unpaid, is never simply a means to an end. It is a way that you image God in the world. And that's why later on in Genesis, Abraham is called by God to be blessed 
But not to see that blessing as something that he holds on to for himself, but it becomes a conduit through which, through his work, he blesses the world. In the small scale of whatever it is you do, you have the ability to reshape the world. And when your work helps the world in general, and people in particular, it becomes an act of worship. So first, work it. But secondly, we are to care for it. Care for this garden. The, the Hebrew word is shamar, and it can be translated as to watch over, to guard, to protect. And we, we are more aware than ever how our habits of consumption come at the expense, oftentimes, of creation. We are aware of our need to shamar the world because in the language of the scriptures, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, which means that it is not ours. It's not our children's or our grandchildren's. It belongs to God. We have been called to partner with God in the world, to cultivate it and to give it back to God as an act of worship. And that means that we're not called to just any kind of work. You know, long hours to make money, to get stuff. Some work is actually destructive to the, to the earth, to, to human flourishing, to the economy. Some work actually cannot be blessed by God. It, think of those whose, whose work it is to provide disinformation or misinformation. Or think about pornography that diminishes and dehumanizes both the participants and the viewers. So it is not just any work that we are called to, but we are called to garden-like work, to care for and to cultivate the world. I love how John Mark Comer describes it in his book, Garden City. He writes, creation was a project, not a product. The garden was designed to go somewhere. And God's vision was for the order and artistry and beauty of Eden to spread out over the whole earth. And human, Adam, was the one who was entrusted to do that job, to fill the earth with the garden's reality. And that's why when you get to the end of the Bible, the renewal of all things, the, the vision that God has is not a return to the garden. The book of Revelation doesn't end with people in a garden. It ends with the city of God coming down, and it's got walls and gates and homes and music and art and poetry and infrastructure and society and food and drink. Why? Because the garden wasn't meant to stay a garden, it was always meant to spill out into the city. So how do we put this into practice? How do we actually like see our work as a way to contribute to God's vision of flourishing in the world instead of a means to you know, satisfy our ever-increasing demands of consumption? Well, I want to suggest two ways as I close, and they both hinge on our reframing work to see it as a calling. The first is through seeing our work as discipleship, and the second is through seeing our work as a means to serve and bless others. Work as discipleship. I mean, our first and, and primary calling is to serve Jesus, to be with him, to be shaped in his likeness so that we can then go out and bear that likeness in the world. But if you think about it, work is the primary arena where you do that imaging out in the world. It's the place where you spend the most of your time. And so it is just as much of a practice that shapes us as anything else is. 
And it's kind of funny. We don't often think of work as a spiritual practice, which is odd because, like I said, it's where we spend most of our time. But it's true. Whether you spend your work as a student, a, a homemaker, a barista, an accountant, whatever it is, uh, we think of things like scripture and prayer and, and things like that as spiritual practices, but then we have to go to work and we don't think about our work that way. But if you think about it, Jesus worked alongside his father, Joseph, for many years, which means that if he came today, he could very well be working as a tradesman or an architect or a software engineer or a teacher. And the point is, he could do very well what it is that you do which means that your work, whatever that is, is a way that you can pursue Jesus. It is a way that is a, a pathway that is open to you in apprenticeship to him. And think about the place where we work out with God in, in community and in prayer and in you know, our spiritual life. Think about the, the daily invitations that we have to receive, to grow, to mature. And work is the place where we learn how to fight apathy, by doing our work with excellence. It's, how we, it's the place where we learn how to fight overwork by putting in rhythms of rest. It's the place where we learn how to handle money and responsibility and power, how to create things that, you know, communities, cultures that uplift and engage people rather than simply to amuse and distract people. It's how we use the law to, to promote justice and the common good rather than consolidating power in the hands of a few. If you are a supervisor, you create a culture where the gifts, the ideas, the voices of others can either be multiplied or diminished. It's where you learn to see that the person in your charge is not just a constantly moving happiness machine, but is in fact a person with a soul, with, with longings, a soul that is made to reign and rule with, with God as one who bears God's image. And it's also the place where we learn that even at its best, work is still hard. It's frustrating. It's tedious sometimes. It is monotonous. It's because the ground is cursed. There are thorns and thistles everywhere we go. But still, your work matters immensely. It's the place where you learn that your work is not God but it is a means that you get to partner with God. It's the garden where you get to create beauty. So when you go to work tomorrow, you're not going as a student or as a doctor or as a homemaker or a policy analyst or whatever it is. You go as a partner with God in taking this whole human project forward. And if you do your job well, it is an act of service to others and an act of worship to God. In all of this, your work is a way that you get to bless others. Doing your job well is a way to tangibly love God and love others. I'll give you a small example of this. It's just to show that whatever it is that you do, you can do it as a working for the Lord. When I was in college, I worked at a coffee shop for a bit. Uh, morning rush was intense, uh, especially like the shift you did not want was the 4 a.m. morning shift on a Monday morning because people were grumpy, right? People who have not had their coffee yet were even grumpier. So, you know, that's just not what you wanted. But I noticed that for a while that a smile 
that a, a pleasant exchange, that a, a word of encouragement would kind of like be a little bit of a spark to people. And I didn't really like coffee at the time. I, I really, I, I thought it was gross, actually. I, I love coffee now. It's like my favorite thing. And I thought that the job is just a way to pay my bills when I was in college. But I started to think, what if it was more than that? What if I learned how to make a really good latte? Like, what if I actually, like, threw myself into it and made the best lattes that I could? What if I paid attention to the way that the crema formed on the espresso and the, the texture of the foam when I was steaming it? And, and I treated each little cup of coffee like a gift that I was giving to somebody. What if I looked at an ordinary cup of cappuccino as a way to make love visible? And little by little, this began to change not just how I saw the work. I actually started to enjoy it a lot more, thinking like, oh, if I make a really good cup of coffee, maybe I'll actually get to see somebody smile. That would be pretty rad. But I noticed that it started to kind of catch on with my coworkers, our, our regular customers that would come in in the morning. They also started to notice, and after a while, they stopped being quite so grumpy in the mornings. One Christmas, I even got a $500 tip. Don't ask me to make you a cup of coffee because you're going to think like it's going to be really, I've set your expectations up way too high at this point. But my point is that it began to change me. It began to change the way that I saw the work that I was doing. English writer Dorothy Sayers says that the best way to serve Jesus at work is to serve the work. And what she means by that is basically be really, really good at what you do. To work for others as though you are working for the Lord, as Paul says to the Colossians. In her tongue-in-cheek way, she wrote this. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. That the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. How good is that? Our work shapes us profoundly. And the reason for this is that from the very beginning of the Bible to the end, if you think I'm overstating it, read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. God is looking for people to reign and rule alongside him. And when we do our work motivated by love, it is an act of worship. When we become a people whose motivation is not to serve the twin gods of accomplishment and accumulation, but instead learn to become a community of contribution whose service and generosity of blessing will lead to the flourishing of our neighborhoods, our families, our city, our world. We will begin to see the garden spilling out into the world on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Almighty God, you appear to us in the early pages of the Bible as a God who works, who is about the work of creation, who saw the work of his hands and said, it is good. In doing so, you blessed the work that we do. Father, we ask that you would shape us as a people made in your image to bear that image proudly in the work that we do. 
but that in so doing, people would look on this community and say, see how they love by the good work that they do. We ask this in the name of your son, our Lord. Amen.